Good evening, good evening. If God's been good to you, say amen. amen. Well, let me tell you, hasn't God been good to us? It is a joy to be back together in the house of the Lord. Maybe we'll have some of that uh, energy that we had in the 830 service this morning. For those of you that weren't there, it was pretty exciting. Uh, the power went off four times, I think four, it may have just been three. But the first one was the one that got my attention. I just said something incredibly poignant. And the lights went off. And I actually did jump. I don't know about you. I can't wait to see what that looks like on video. Hey, if you have your Bible, Revelation 7, we're going to read the same verses that we read this morning. It's our topic and theme for the night. And I want us to take a moment and consider this because really tonight is not five at five. It's actually three questions and a long discussion. So ride along with me on this. If you are interested in Jewish thinking, the tribal nature of Judaism, if you're interested in the background and the history of the, the, uh, the Jewish kingdoms, then make sure you grab the notes tonight. This was something that I got started and I got carried away. But that happens to me sometimes, and uh, so I want you to have these opportun this opportunity to sort of engage in this, because this isn't a conversation we have very often. For the most part, we're not Jewish, and so we don't take these into account very often, but it's appropriate to do so tonight. Let's read from the word of the Lord, Revelation 7, starting in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe and the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. This is what the testimony of the Word of God says. Now, next week, we're going to take the rest of chapter 7. And probably the most disappointed I've seen Brian Pinson since he came to serve here is this morning when he came to my office and said, Darren, are we going to cover verse 9 today? And I said, no. The crestfallen look on his face was just more than I could bear. So if you're wanting to study ahead like Brian is, he's sitting in the back wishing I would stop talking about him, then I invite you to read ahead in verse 9. And in that verse, you will see the great multitude that we cannot number of those who are also present. This is what we'll talk about next Sunday. So if you came today and you were disappointed 
that we didn't talk more about heaven, next Sunday is your day. I encourage you to join us for that, for it'll be a respite before we jump into chapter 8. Now, when we get to this, we will remind ourselves of what we said this morning at the conclusion of our talk. What are these 144,000? I gave you two options. Let's just refresh our memory. One, they are Jews dedicated to serving God. God will protect them and spare them from judgment and death. And they'll proclaim the gospel in the darkest of hours. Or number two, the 144,000 number is symbolic. It represents all those who are in Christ having been grafted into God's family. It doesn't mean that we as believers have replaced Israel. It means that we have joined them. To that point, someone asked me after the second service, what does grafted mean in this context? And I realized we don't talk much about grafting in West Texas, primarily because we don't have very many trees, do we? But if you lived in East Texas, where trees are abundant and plentiful, you would know probably more about grafting. The process of grafting is cutting a tree and that might have some sort of ailment in its higher branches, cutting that tree, and then splicing into it a sapling from another tree. And in doing so, you have grafted those two trees together and made still yet a third one from the pieces of the two. This is exactly what God has done with the nation of Israel and with us as Gentiles. He's grafted the two into one and thus made a third option. Not everyone, not everyone agrees with that interpretation, and I respect and honor that, but let us rejoice today that that's the perspective we're going to take tonight. These options that I've presented to you are not binary. The combination between them can be made as well. I want to take you through a more extensive, a slower walk than we took this morning about who these 144,000 are according to others. Let's jump into our slideshow here and start with this one. According to our friends with Jehovah's Witness, the 144,000 are the anointed class. They're the ones who will go to heaven at death to rule with Jesus. Only those born since Christ's resurrection are qualified to join that group. Given how many believers have lived faithfully since then, most of Jehovah's Witnesses hope not to be among the 144,000, but among the other sheep that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10, or the great crowd that is described in Revelation 7, 9 and following. While we can celebrate that they understand that the 144,000 are an anointed class, this seems out of step with what we might understand from the rest of Scripture with regard to those in heaven. It doesn't seem to be reserved for those who are of a particular thinking or brand. It rather seems that they are for those that are in Christ, thus the 144,000 and the great multitude. There doesn't seem to be a barrier according to what we read in Revelation 7, between those two, and yet here, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, they are indeed. The second one, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons, 
believe the 144,000 is related to the high priests, ordained priests prepared to serve heaven for all eternity. Thus, regular folk like you and me won't be there. We will be somewhere else. Now, where will we be? That's a great question. There's a lot of different answers to that according to Mormonism. Maybe we can take that up when we study them more specifically at a later time. But let us say for now that they believe that 144,000 is related to the high priests, not just those who are in Christ. Finally, the Seventh-day Adventists. They believe the 144,000 are those who are found observing the Jewish Sabbath when the Lord comes back. As I mentioned this morning, for this to be true, each one of them would need to be of Jewish lineage. Now, many years ago, when Seventh-day Adventist was a smaller group, they believed that all of the Seventh-day Adventists would be there. But when they reached 144,001, they had to modify their teaching to balance the reality that they couldn't all fit in. I neglected to mention this in the 830 service, but I did in the 11. There was quite a bit of a hubbub in, I don't recall which of these three, and I couldn't find it in my Google searches didn't enable me to, tell, to find it this week. There was quite a bit of hubbub in one of these three groups a few years ago when uh, a lady stepped forward and said she was one of the 144,000. For all three of them, for that to be true, that means that one of the saints, those who have already taken one of those seats, has fallen. It was scandalous to say the least, and there were some who were quite upset about it. My word to that is quite simple. We don't have to figure out who those 144,000 are because God already knows. And because God already knows, I can let that burden shift to him and stop trying to hold on to it for myself. Some of you will come talk to me later and you will say, but Darren, that kind of answer is just not sufficient for my critical thinking, cynical, skeptical Western mindset. I, I get that. We want exactitude. We want specifics. We want clarity. But we need to be mindful of something we said way back in January. We cannot bring a Western style of thinking to an Eastern document and expect to be satisfied at the same level that we want to be. This is apocalyptic literature, not academic writing. It's not intended to be precise or specific in the same way that we understand that. This is a vision that John is having, remember? And when we enforce our methodologies on John and thereby God himself, we're essentially saying to God, you're wrong to not tell me. Now, if that doesn't make you a little squeamish, then maybe we need to talk after this is over. Because to tell God you're wrong is tantamount to blasphemy. Be cautious. Instead of demanding an answer, let's just rejoice that God has given us this glimpse at all. Let's press on to where I got carried away. This isn't a question, it's more of a discussion. Tell us more about the tribes. I realized as I was getting ready to talk to you for this morning that Really, in the, the six years and a little bit of change that I've been here, we've never talked really about the tribes of Israel. 
there hasn't really been time or opportunity to do so. That's what I'd like for us to do for the next few minutes. And the question that will come behind it is one that you will hear a lot. Question number three is, what about the lost tribes? If I had a nickel for every time somebody has come to me and said, well, that problem that you're experiencing is because of the lost tribes, I, I, I promise you, we could all buy that ranch up in Amarillo. Did y'all see that thing on TV, like $28 billion or something stupid? It wouldn't be a problem because there are so many different theories about these tribes. I want to take you to where they're actually explained and talk with you about them. First, I want you to notice the tribal map that I've included. If you are interested, then you can either zoom in on it, if you have it in your phone right ahead of you, or better yet, you can look in the map section of your Bible and find a very similar, if not the exact same map, to examine more carefully. Let's start with the tribe of Reuben, because he's the oldest. His name means God has looked on me. He's the son of Jacob and Leah. You'll remember Leah. She's the one with the weak eyes. Our understanding of Leah and that phrase, weak eyes, reflects something short of what it would have understood. What if I told you that I'd set you up on a blind date and they had a nice personality? What does that mean to you? Yeah, don't get your hopes up, right? The same with weak eyes. This would have been a nice way to say she's not that pretty. Weak eyes means you don't have to look at her very hard. So for Leah to give birth to the first son was a great honor. It's too bad she wasn't loved. His tribal land, I want to point out to you, is on the northeast side of the Dead Sea. You'll notice from the map that I've provided you, there's only two and a half tribes that have property on the east side of the Dead Sea, on the east side of the Jordan River. For the oldest to be one of them is significant. It's what we would now call Jordan, a plot of land that is arid, and not as fertile as some of the other spots. And yet, when you read through, if you're reading our reading plan that we do annually, then you've just finished the book of Joshua, and you're just starting the book of Judges, where that land has been assigned. And you saw that Reuben asked for, the tribe asked for that land. Maybe he knew something that we didn't. Each of the tribes has a coat of arms. I want you to take a look at the coat of arms for Reuben, and let's talk about why they have it. Reuben's coat of arms features a child eating some mandrakes, a sort of papaya-type fruit. It's drawn from Genesis chapter 30, verse 14. During the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. That's how the coat of arms was born. Reuben was a hot-headed individual, might have just as easily put somebody appearing to be violent, but he's also the oldest, and we respect and honor him at that point. Let's talk about the tribe of Simeon. 
the second of the tribal, the, the, the born to Jacob. His name means God hears me. Isn't that beautiful? I, I just want to put a, a, a bookmark in here just for a moment and let you jump ahead to Luke chapter 2. In Luke 2, you'll find there's a prophet who meets Jesus, infant Jesus, at the temple. His name is Simeon. I can't help but believe that God Hears Me was meant for that Simeon too. It says that he'd been waiting for the consolation of Israel and God told him, here he is. The prayer that he prays still brings tears to my eyes when I think about it. Now let your servant be dismissed in peace for I've seen the promised salvation. Simeon. He was also a son of Jacob and Leah. This tribe was not always regarded as one of the 12. It's one of the southernmost tribes, and his apportionment was largely arid, not unlike Midland. This area that you see highlighted on your map, it butts up against the wilderness of Zin. It is a region that is inhospitable in almost every understanding. When you get down to that far south, you ran up, run up against another tribe. We call them the Nabataeans. This is not regarding the tribes of Israel, but the Nabataeans play a specific role, for they are a constant enemy that we see in the later years of the New Testament and the early years of, I'm sorry, the later years of the Old Testament and the early years of the New. Simeon's coat of arms reflects the towers and walls of Shechem. Shechem is not in the region that is designated on your map. It's quite a bit north from there. But they were not restricted to their tribal inheritance. So their tribe lost most of its individuality, especially after the incident with Zimri in Numbers 31. If you're curious about that, we'll let you follow up on that later, and I encourage you to do so. Let us move on to Levi, the third son of Jacob and Levi, uh, Jacob and Leah. Levi's name means joined to me. What a beautiful picture. Because herein is God joining this tribe to himself. These are the priestly tribe. And I encourage you to note on your map that you will not see a designation for the Levite tribe anywhere on your map. The reason for that is significant. They did not receive an allotment at all, but rather received allotments within all of the tribal lands and an apportionment from each of the offerings that came. The tribe of Levi has with it the coat of arms, the breastplate. This breastplate, it represents the nation of Israel on the person of the high priest. He, by command of God, would wear this on him as if he stood between God and the people represented on those stones. When we think of Levi, let us rejoice that God did not leave us to our own devices. Rather, because of God's kindness, he wanted a relationship with us and established it through something like what we have with the Levite tribe. 
Levites are common in the Old Testament, and I encourage you, make a note when you find them, especially when you are reading through Judges and First and Second Kings. It's significant, and you'll find that it's always notated when the Levite is, is, is present. Let's move on to the largest of the tribes, the tribe of Judah. I will praise the Lord, his name means. The fourth son of Jacob and Leah. You will notice that his apportionment runs from basically Jerusalem down into the region that we would call the Sinai Peninsula. It is a large apportionment and it runs along the border of the Dead Sea. We might see that and go, gee, thanks, that's awfully great land. Not really. It is desert almost exclusively. And yet there are two things that I wish to point out to you. One is, please observe that Bethlehem is in Judah. Anybody remember what Luke chapter 2 says? Ah, yes, you'll know it in December, won't you? When the calendar turns over there, it says that Bethlehem was in the land of Judah. Friends, this is where that comes from. And it links us back to those tribes. Judah's apportionment is considerable because so is its tribe. It's the largest of the tribes. The tribal coat of arms for our friend Judah reflects that the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is coming. Now, if you look very far at all, then you'll find there are other symbols associated with this tribe. One is a crown, another is a harp, both associated with King David. When you travel to Jerusalem, it is not uncommon, especially in the region around where we think David was buried, to see those symbols in regular usage. Let us rejoice that God gave us the tribe of Judah, for without it we wouldn't have Jesus. Celebrate today for this tribe. Now we come to the tribe of Issachar. His name means he purchased me. What a hard word this is. You will notice that uh, their land apportionment it was right up against the southwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It's among some of the most rich and fertile land anywhere in the nation of Israel and thus among the most desirable. Issachar's coat of arms depicts the sun, moon, and stars. Traditionally, this is a, a tribe of scholars, thus the symbols that are listed here. In 1 Chronicles 7, there are 87,000 mighty men of valor from this tribe. It's one of only two tribes not criticized for failing to take Canaan, or Canaan, excuse me. In other words, they did what God told them to do. They subdued their portion. Let us move on to Zebulon, the final and sixth son of Jacob and Leah. His name means a dwelling place, and if you look carefully at the map, you will see that his land and Issachar's land are close together. It's a symbiotic relationship. 
that connects the two of them together. Now, quite frankly, the maps do not agree as to the exact boundaries of that allotment. Most of them, most of them reflect that it goes all the way to that little crook, that little notch in the nation of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea, the city of what we call Joppa now. Most scholars predict that it shows that, and that's why the coat of arms features a sailing vessel. One of the only deep sea ports available is there in Joppa. It's a logical equivalent to say they had sailing vessels as their, as their marker, given their proximity. They were also regarded as the bearers of the rod of the scribe. That is, they were lawyers associated with the keepers of the law. Lawyers. Uh, somebody might joke that we need to load them on the ship and set them a sail. But we won't make that joke here tonight. We'll just say that Zebulun was filled with a group of men who knew not only how to sail, but to manage God's law. Now we move to the tribe of Gad. Gad's name, I've been granted a good fortune. He's the first son of Jacob and Zilpah. You remember Zilpah, she was one of the handmaidens given to Jacob in an effort to keep his line extended. And you'll also notice that Gad's property, Gad's allotment, is on the east side of the Jordan River. It is in what we would call Jordan now. It's one of the two and a half tribes that did not come across. Gad's coat of arms features warriors, suggesting that they were a feisty tribe, perhaps more so than others. They also have an alternate coat of arms that suggests they were nomads. The picture was of tents, tents that reflected they were always on their way. Let's, try, let's talk about the tribe of Asher. We move all the way from the easternmost part of the nation all the way over to the westernmost He's the second son of Jacob and Zilpah. And when Jesus is brought to the temple, like we talked about a little while ago, he's greeted by Anna, a prophetess. She's a member of the tribe of Asher. You'll notice that it is always right up against the sea. And it runs up into what we now call Lebanon. Thus, the coat of arms features a tree. They had some of the great trees used in the construction of facilities. We might even wonder if some of the trees from Asher's property were a part of the construction of Solomon's temple. Now let's move on to the tribe of Dan. Happy am I, is what his name means. He's the first son of Jacob and Bilhah, the second of the handmaidens and the last of the handmaidens given to him. It is the second largest tribe, after Judah, and their land allotment is, is given to the sea on the west. You'll notice them way over there in the green, if you're looking at the same map that I am, and bordering to uh, the Philistines. Irenaeus, church leader from the end of the first century, beginning of the second, believed that the Antichrist would come from this tribe. Dan's coat of arms features an eagle, an alternative coat features the scales of justice. 
we find in the book of Judges some from the tribe of Dan, such as our friend Samson. Did we not get it going any further? That's all we got? All right, well, we'll keep going then. Uh, if you call my office tomorrow, then we will be glad to provide you with an emailed version or a printed version at your choice. Let us talk about Naphtali. His name is an interesting one, My Wrestling. Hmm, I can get on board with that. He's the second son of Jacob and Bilhah, and he has the second most northern allotment. His runs up to what we call the Golan Heights. Some of you have heard of the Golan Heights. Maybe you didn't know where they were. His property includes Mount Hermon. I invite you, if you've ever had an interest in biblical history, to take a look at the Golan Heights. It is a fascinating story and a piece of property that is so fought over that it is managed by the United Nations now. No one, no one has sovereignty over it. This is the land of Naphtali. His property has a coat of arms featuring a gazelle. The theme is drawn from Jacob's final blessing. In Genesis 49, Jacob gathers all of his sons together one last time and offers them each a blessing. This is what he said to our friend Naphtali. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. <laughs> I've always thought... I wonder how Naphtali received being called female. I'm not sure. Now we're narrowing down the tribe of Benjamin. Friends, this is the smallest of the tribes, and yet it is not one of the least significant. He is the second son of Jacob and Rachel, the youngest son of his favorite wife, Rachel. His allotment was the smallest, but as you can see from your map in front of you, it included Jerusalem. Significantly, it's also the tribe of King Saul. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that. Benjamin's coat of arms features a wolf. <laughs> it looks more like here, I'll just hold up my iPad. Maybe you can see it from where you're sitting. It looks more like a patch that a military brand would wear. Something like what they would put on their sleeve. Why, why that? Genesis 49, yet again. Verse 27 says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Now we come to Joseph. Joseph is an interesting case. His name means God will add to me. He's the first son of Jacob and Rachel, but I saved him for last because his, his tribe is different than the rest. It is a head-scratcher to those of us who are uh, scholars with regard to Joseph is included in the list in, Gen in Revelation 7, but so is Ephraim. Almost as if Dan and Manasseh, uh, I'm sorry, so is Manasseh. Almost like Dan and, and Ephraim have been replaced. Perhaps so. We can say this with confidence. His tribe 
was divided into two by Joseph himself. In Genesis 48, the chapter before Jacob blesses all the other boys, Joseph brings his two sons for Jacob to bless. He does indeed bless them, and as he does so, he transfers the title and deed of the property of their title, of their tribe, to the two boys. Manasseh and Ephraim each reserved the, received the allotment their fathers deserved. If you are looking at a map, if you can see the map that is uh, in front of me, Manasseh is the only tribe that stretches all the way from the Mediterranean on the west side to the Jordan River and beyond. The rest of the tribes, they either stop at the river or they stop at the sea, but they don't go over either side. Manasseh's tribe was not the largest, and yet it received the largest of any of the allotments. Ephraim's allotment is at the center of the nation. It features some of the most fertile land available. Here's the curious thing. If you were to draw a line from that crook in the map of the nation of Israel, draw a line diagonally from that crook down to Jerusalem, you would approximate the valley of Megiddo, the site of the future battle of Armageddon. Curiously, both of these allotments fall within that stretch. Now, let's deal with this lost tribe business so that you don't get confused by it in the days ahead. Go with me back to about 750 B.C. Our friend, the prophet Isaiah, is writing with a warning. And the warning is quite simple. You, friends, are about to fall. Don't, don't be deceived into thinking God's patience will reign forever. He will send you out. In 732 or thereabouts, the ten northern tribes, everybody except Judah and Benjamin, were carried away into captivity by the Assyrians. The Bible never describes these tribes as lost, but we do. Now, it's true. About 200 years later, a little less than that actually, Judah and Benjamin are carried away. The southern kingdom is carried away into exile by the Babylonians. But when the tribes come back, Judah and Benjamin come back to the land they had before they left. The other ten tribes don't. They, to this day, have never recovered all of the land that is somewhat rightfully theirs. Cyrus the Great was the one who allowed them to return in approximately 500 B.C. If you're interested, you can look it up in 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra chapter 1. But the reason we call them lost is because they surrendered their land, and when they came back, they didn't cling to their identity associated with that land in the same way. That doesn't mean that we can safely ignore them or pretend that they're not significant, but it certainly does mean that they're different than the other ones. 
Now to the final question for tonight. The mission of the 144,000. We've said who we think they are. Now let's talk about what they're doing. Simply put, their mission is to proclaim the gospel. They won't be the only ones doing so, but they'll certainly be among them. In Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus chose 12 whose primary mission was to reach Israel. In Acts 2, Jesus expanded that to all those present in Jerusalem. 3,000 people were saved that day. In Acts 15, the mission was expanded to include the Gentiles as well. And now in Revelation 7, the mission sends 144,000 out to proclaim the gospel. Can I tell you, my friends, to think about 144,000 evangelists going out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ at a critical moment and juncture in history says to me, God is nowhere near done. It may appear that evil has won, but friends, don't be dissuaded. We need not fear. Our God has plans yet ahead, and a revival awaits. Rejoice with me in that. All right, my friends, let's play Stump the Chump. My friend Katie has a microphone. Perhaps you have a question that is burning in your pocket, and you'd, oh, John's up fast. <laughs> He's got one burning a hole in his pocket. Uh, all right, thank you, Darren. Yes, um, sir. You, this morning you asked the question, and it said, do, you asked the question, do you or must you be a Jew to be a member of the 144,000? Yep. Which um, I probably didn't answer loud enough. I said yes, but which you immediately uh, responded, no. Yeah. And I guess I'm just, in looking at this particular passage, I cannot see how we can see how anyone other than Jews can be members of this particular group. Sure. Um, he mentions in there that uh, he, he says that they were, well, we can agree they, were, they are missionaries, and the passage starts out with um, basically the angels stopping the winds and protecting, not allowing any judgment to fall until sure. this 144,000 can be sealed as bondservants of Christ. Sure. So it's really sealing them as missionaries to be protected from the judgment, not, not the seal of salvation with that. Uh, and then very clearly in verse 4, it just says, and I heard the number of these were sealed 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. It doesn't really give any opportunity for there to be other people with that. And then he gets more specific and saying 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 sure. from the other tribe. So, I mean, I just, in, in reading this scripture, it's very clear Israel is mentioned and no opportunity really for somebody else to be in there. And those of us who, you know, are, we, are, we are grafted into the blessings of Israel uh, through Jesus Christ, but that does not mean that we then become a member of one of these tribes or anything like that. And then you've also said that, um, you, know, our, you know, that we are, you know, is this just illustrative? But if we were to go back to the very beginning of the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads these and hears these words of prophecy and heeds the things which are written in it. 
for the time is near. So um, this, this is more than just a vision. This is, this is prophecy, and I really cannot see anywhere in this passage, and maybe you can tell me where you are coming from, that would allow there to be anyone other than 144,000 Jews who are referred to in this particular passage. So let me just start by saying, you're right, John. I've fought my, myself for the last couple of months working through this. No, it isn't necessary that someone, uh, that Jewish people and them only are the 144,000. And yet you're right. That's exactly what it seems to say. The question then begs on a broader context, how do we take Revelation 14 in context with this? I'll let you respond. Well, I, I, we can certainly have a discussion when we get there, but I would also say that uh, this, is, this is, one thing you did not mention was that uh, there's a tribulation in this whole oh, yes. passage. That's coming. And, and that, um, you know, these are particularly in the, in the tribulation period. This is sure. not in the era that we are in today. We certainly are not in the tribulation. And, um, you know, that... Uh, it, these are missionaries called out in this specific time of the tribulation to reach people in the tribulation. And then we'll get to see the fruits of their ministry next week when we start talking about, uh, the, um, about the, the multitudes right. that are worshiped. And it mentions particularly who are, the question is asked in there, who is this multitude? And it is the saints who are saved in the tribulation yes. uh, with that um, there. So... Let me just pause here and say, I don't think we are disagreeing as much as we're saying there are questions we can't answer. And Revelation is a great example of that in whole context. What is vision-based and what is conclusive prophecy? Boy, that's a tough one. I spent a year in, in uh, deep study with this and came away with a lot more questions than answers. Here's what I mean. We can't even agree about how to structure this book. Is it four visions or six? We can't even agree about where the visions start and stop, even if we do agree on that. So I, I resist the urge in myself to make clean divisions and say this is what it means here and this is what prophecy must mean in apocalyptic literature. So I'm not disagreeing with you, John. I think we're in good company to say, yes, all 144,000 are necessarily Jewish and heritage. No harm, no foul there, no problem. Where I'm, I'm reluctant is to say they can only be Jewish. Based on what you've given, yes, but take the whole context of Revelation 14 with it too. We'll get to that in a few weeks because yes, the tribulation is something we're going to tackle. Yeah, this is a conversation maybe you and I need to sit down and have more, more at length, but the, con the, the short version is, yes, it seems indicative that this is all Jewish, 144,000 of them. But is God limited to that? I'm reluctant to tell God there's no way out. Yes. Yeah, but is it possible that God has, has other plans that he doesn't detail for us and that I'm not privy to? Not for the 144,000. 
We'll have to continue this conversation later. Yeah, Mike's by. Oh, go ahead, John. Go ahead. Okay. I think Mike had one back here. Oh, yeah, Jackie, too. Go ahead. I think I've asked you this before, but I grew up in Oklahoma, and in college, one of my best friends was a full-blooded Navajo Indian, and she believed that they were one of the lost tribes. Yes. How many lost tribes are there, or do we know? There are 10 lost tribes, and uh, it depends on who you ask as to where they went when they were lost. So the, the Navajo are not the only ones who suggest that, uh, and... Quite frankly, some of our, our cult-based friends, they start with that as a presumption, that they are one of the lost tribes. I, I don't know that they aren't, and so I can't say conclusively, but I'll say that the Bible never calls the tribes lost in the first place. We do. So I'm reluctant to say there are, this group equates to that tribe. We don't have that kind of linkage. Yes, ma'am. A good question. I think my friend Mike had his hand up. Well, I have some Jewish friends and relatives by marriage, and they, they don't know what tribe they came from. So how do we know when somebody says they're from a tribe? So one of the, the, the those who are Zionist Jews specifically, uh, they'll do enough genealogy to get back far enough to know what tribe they belong to. For those that are really eager about it, They'll, they'll make sure that linkage is made. Uh, not unlike some of our friends who are really committed to being a part of the Revolutionary War, daughters and sons, and so on. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think it's, it has the significance now that it did once upon a time. All right, anybody else? Yeah, Clark. Thanks. You may have answered this, and my mind just wandered because yes, I do that. Why is Dan not in there? So, do we know? Um, Dan, there's a lot of reasons that we might regard Dan not as a part of it. Uh, we'll just give you a couple. Uh, one is that Dan is regarded as the tribe of the Antichrist. If John, uh, if John knew that, uh, then we will presume that he would cut him out at that point under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Another one is that Genesis 49 speaks of him as having serpent-like qualities. That blessing from Jacob uh, has with it the idea that, that uh, Dan um, features a serpent-like quality and thus would have been excluded. Another one um, that's sort of on the outside edges is that uh, there was a scribal mistake and that Manasseh was not supposed to be included and Dan was. Uh, in other words, it wouldn't take a big leap to go from Dan to man or the other way around. That, that takes a little more of a uh, little bit more conjecture. So uh, that one's sort of a, if I have to make a call, that would be my last ditch. Uh, but we... Quite frankly, Clark, we don't know. And so these are things that we must say, God, we leave it to you. All right? We got time for one more? Way back in the corner. 
Got to get here early for that seat, Ricky. Pastor James 1 1 uh, says that this letter is to the uh, 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And you made the comment that uh, we don't, it doesn't say that they're lost, they're just scattered. Right. And a question I have for you is the fact that Joseph was married to a Gentile. So by reckoning, Jewish reckoning, would Ephraim and Manasseh uh, not be Gentile? That's a good question. Ricky, I'll tell you, you've, you've asked something I don't have an answer to re readily handy, so I'll have to go back and evaluate it. My first blush at it would be yes. They would not be fully Jewish. However, exclusions can be made for the right people. Some are more equal than others, right? Maybe Joseph is one of those. Uh, I don't know that. Uh, let me come back to you next week with a better answer. How about that? 